0: for the reading of the scripture. We're in Romans 16 tonight, the very last chapter of the book of Romans. And uh, we really struggled getting volunteers to help with reading this particular text. So I'm gonna do it myself. And I think you'll see why in just a moment. Uh, We didn't have too many people eager to read this one out loud. So if you would follow along with me, this is Romans chapter 16, verses one through 16. Here we go. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet who who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophania and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been mother to me as well. Greet... Asynchritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's give thanksgiving now together. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray that as we study it, as we chew on it in these next few moments, Lord, you would allow us to have the meditations of all of our hearts pleasing in your sight, and the words of my mouth as I attempt to preach pleasing in your sight as well. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You may be seated. Okay, full disclosure, I think I was more nervous about that than anything I've been nervous about in a long time. Um, it's. It was that uh, arist, est, Aristobulus, uh, Aristobulus, there it is, Aristobulus. When I practiced, that was the one I came to, and I was just like, how do you say that? So I'm feeling pretty good about myself for reading that. Um, you know, don't act like you're not impressed. I know you are. <laughs> so let's... Um, Let's jump into this text. So many names is what I named it because there are a lot of names. Oh, my goodness. Twenty-seven in all, I counted them. And in fact, those are just the proper names. There's more when you take into um, the references to the mother of Rufus or the sister of Nereus or the fellowships of these people in the different house churches there's a lot of people that are greeted here and spoken of and i think the thing that is just most astounding to me is not just the sheer volume of names here in this section but the fact that most of these names here are people that paul had not had not met in person yet you realize that I mean, we've been talking about this. He, he hasn't, in person, been able to go visit Rome. So a lot of these people he has never met one-on-one before. Some of them listed here are people he has crossed paths with. But most are folks he only knows by reputation. And it's really stunning to me that not only does he know their name, but he knows how it is that they are pouring themselves out for the cause of Christ and seeing the gospel go forward. It's just yet again, another reminder, we've been talking about this a lot the last few weeks, that this letter to the Romans is exactly that, a letter. And it's so easy for us as we've, we've gotten into the nitty-gritty of the theology and the doctrine in this letter and the way that it, it shows us the gospel, we can be so kind of enmeshed in that that we forget that there's this very personal element, that Paul isn't just doing theology in abstracts. No, he's writing this to real people with real names and real history and real stories. And it's helpful, uh, you know, just to kind of, I know we've been talking about this a lot the last few weeks, but it's worth saying again. It it, it is helpful because it allows us to reject this myth that sometimes floats around the church about ministry and the myth goes like this usually. It says you've got to choose one or the other. In Christian ministry, you've got to either be all about theology and doctrine and right teaching or you're all about people and relationships. And I read the book of Romans where it's got this theology and the personal perfectly blended together and I say, hey, I don't want to choose. <laughs> I don't want it to be an either or. I want to be able to do both of those things. I see Paul. In this letter and the way especially that he's written to these people at the end here saying that he is 100% serious about cultivating and developing real relationship but at the same time he's doing that by teaching them right doctrine and sound teaching in Christ. He's giving them the gospel. He doesn't say it's got to be either or one or the other. He does both and i hope that that could be who we are as a church but that's old news we've been talking about that that's just a little bit of a reminder of where we've been the last few weeks so let's look at some new things from this particular text now i'll tell you what i'm not going to do all right i am not going to go through all 27 of these names and give you the bio and the backdrop of all of them mostly because you guys would like start booing, throwing things at me, storming out, angry emails, it just would be a disaster. But more importantly, why I'm not gonna do that is because I can't. I don't have the bio of every single person that's listed in this text, nobody does. There are some people that are named here that we know a little bit of background information about, but there are many of them that we have no idea at all. And it would just be purely speculation if we tried to kind of fill in their story. So I I can't go through all those names and give you the full picture of their life and who they were. But here's what we're going to do instead. We are going to look at sort of the broad strokes, the big picture of this greeting section, and notice a few things that jump out to us. Because in the context of all these names, the 27 of them, there's some really cool things to see about the church at Rome here and things that we can take away and learn from. So, these three takeaways. I'm going to start the first one with this. Uh, I think I have a slide for this with a different background to get your attention. A church like ours. Here's my big takeaway from all this. It looks, based on this text, like the church at Rome was very similar to a a particular quirkiness about our church. And that is, it looks like it was a multi-site church. To use a phrase that definitely wouldn't have been said back in the day in the first century. And yet, it appears that just like our church is this, we're Ridge Presbyterian Church, one church, but we have two sites, two congregations. We have the group in Paradise that meets in the morning, Ridge Paradise, but then also here we are in the evenings in Chico, Vespers, Chico. But we're one church, two different locations, two different sites. And it seems like the folks at Rome were kind of in a similar situation. Look at verse 5. Right after we're told about Prisca and Aquila, Prisca is sometimes also in the Bible known as Priscilla, Paul says this to them. He says, greet also the church in their house, which then sets the table for later on when he goes through uh, this list of names in verse 15, and he says, and greet all the saints who are with them. In verse 14 above, another list of names, and then it says, and And greet the brothers and sisters who are with them also. What it seems like Paul is doing is he's acknowledging that there is one church in Rome. However, it's sort of divided up into these small sort of house-home fellowships all throughout the city. It was a big city. And there's sort of these small pockets of groups that meet together. Even though they're one church, the church in Rome, there's different fellowships throughout the city. And again, That's kind of like us. Now, I'm not saying that uh, to try to prove to you that uh, the the model of our church set up, this multi-site idea, is the way to do church fellowship or planning. Not at all. Uh, There are all sorts of different uh, looks of how churches can operate and function in this scripture. This is just one of them amongst many. But I'm pointing it out today because I, it's helpful, I think, for us to remember that we're not inventing the wheel here with how we've set up our church with this kind of dual-site model. And also, how do I put this? When we encounter some of the frustrations and annoyances of being one church with two different locations, it's good to remember that, you know what? The Church of Jesus Christ has been here before And he's protected her and prospered her and used that particular setup to bear great fruit in whatever city they were in. Maybe I'm preaching to myself here more than anything. Because I'll tell you guys, it is hard sometimes with the, the, the two the churches, the church in paradise and the church down here in Chico, and working hard to try to get people to know each other and to fellowship together, trying to figure out how to spend our time as pastors between both places. Like, it can be tough. And yet, here's God saying, it's happened before, it's going to be okay. Okay. Maybe it even gives us fresh vision as we consider some of the teaching on humility and unity amongst the body. And even a few weeks back, we talked a lot about choosing love over prizing our liberty. And maybe the reason why Paul was talking like that is because he knew that there was the potential for strife and rivalry and trouble when the church in the city of Rome was split up into these smaller pocket groups. So for us we might be able to apply some of this teaching in Romans better than other churches might that don't have a similar situation because we know the beauty of it, but also the struggle of it sometimes too. So that's the first takeaway I have from these names. This church might kind of be a church like ours. Second thing has to do with who we see using their gifts for the sake of the church in Romans 16. All throughout this passage, we have Paul giving shout outs to these people that he wants to give greetings to, but then he also includes usually uh, what they've been doing, how they've been using their gifts for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel. And one thing that really strikes me in all of this is that the whole body is vital to the gospel going forward and creating this foundation for the church. That means not just the apostles, not just the teachers, not just the ordained leaders, but leaders and lay people alike, those in positions of authority and those that are worshipers, just congregants in the church. All of them are represented here and these greetings that Paul's given, everybody is needed. Now, where this gets very applicable for us and the part that I wanna hone in on with this today is that we can take this principle and see it especially clear when it comes to men and women. It's not just men who Paul gives a shout out here saying like they've used their gifts to grow the church. There's also much mention of godly women who are using the gifts and the talents that God has given them for the sake of advancing the gospel in the church at Rome. Among these names, there are at least eight of them that we know for sure are women's names. And there's more than that if you include the, the mother of Rufus and the sister of Narius. These are people that Paul is saying, listen, here are some of the descriptors he gives for them. He says at one point that they have worked hard in Christ. At one point he says that Priscilla has stuck her neck out for him and for the gospel. He says that the mother of Rufus has been like a mother to him too. He says that Phoebe is a patron of many, including him. These are some of the things that he's using to describe women in the church using their giftedness and abilities for the sake of the gospel, and he doesn't ignore that or dismiss that. He names it. That's vitally important for us to see that for the body of Christ to function in its fullness, we need all the members of the body using their gifts, not just one segment or portion. Where we see this probably the most clearly is with the woman that I just mentioned her name. Her name's Phoebe. She's the first woman, actually the first person mentioned in this text. The first two verses talk to us about Phoebe and it's interesting because Of all the people listed here, she's the only one that's given this recommendation, this commendation that Paul gives. And he says, you are to receive our sister Phoebe. You're supposed to welcome her, show her hospitality, and give her any help that she might require. Now, why is, of all the people listed here, why is she the only one given this sort of recommendation? Here's the reason. She most likely is the one who carried the letter the Romans. You know, there's no postal service, right? So how does a letter get to the church in Rome? Somebody has to be the courier. Somebody has to take it. It seems like it was Phoebe, especially with this recommendation that she's given. We're told that she was part of this church at uh, Syncrea. I believe that's how you say that. It's right on the outskirts of Corinth. And Corinth is the place most people think that Paul was was at when he wrote this letter. So she's there outside of Corinth. He gives the letter to her. She takes it to Rome. And he says, welcome her. Show her hospitality. Give her anything she might need. Because she is the one delivering the letter. That is a huge responsibility. And a huge honor be able to care, uh, excuse me, to carry this letter from the apostle to the people of the church of Rome. It, it, it makes sense though because what Paul then goes on to say is that Phoebe is a woman that has shown herself to be full of faithfulness and integrity for many years in her capacity as part of this church outside of Corinth. I, I mentioned it already but it says that she is a patron of many and of myself as well. Which in the ancient world, this patron-client relationship was very formal and very profound. It usually meant that the patron was somebody of great wealth and means that was able to kind of sponsor or support the person that was their client. So this has made many people think that Phoebe might well have been a very successful businesswoman who had the means and the ability to support and kind of give financial backing to Paul and the other evangelists in their missionary journeys. It's kind of cool. But then he says this as well. He says, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea. That word servant is very interesting And the reason why is something you might remember from weeks ago. We talked about this in our study of Romans. But the Greek word for servant is the very same word that we also translate as deacon. Diakonos is the word. And it goes back to the fact that the the deacons in the early church were the servants of the church. They were the ones that waited the tables. They took care of the needs, the physical and practical needs of the people. And so that word servant all of a sudden became kind of this technical term for the office of deacon. This ordained, set aside, consecrated leadership role in the church. And Paul uses that word when describing Phoebe. What are we supposed to take from that? People disagree, as you can imagine. People disagree about everything. (laughs) But in this particular instance, the ambiguity of the term has caused people to really kind of be in sharp debate about what exactly this means. There are some people that think that this word was used very technically and strategically by Paul because what he's trying to say is Phoebe is a deaconess. She has that authority in office in her home church, and when she says she's a deacon, he's meaning that as the title of the office, which would then prove that way back in the first century even, there were women serving in the office of deacon in the early church. There are people on the other side of this debate, though, that see it differently and say, no, what, we, we can't read this text in isolation. We have to connect it with the other parts of the New Testament that tell us about ordained office. And the same guy that wrote Romans is the Apostle Paul who wrote multiple places, 1 Timothy in particular, about how this authority, leadership, ordained office of elder and deacon is something that's reserved for qualified men in the church. And so they say this can't mean the technical title of deacon, it has to be the more generic term of servant that she cared for the church that she used all that she had to to see it prosper and go forward our very own denomination the PCA, the church that we're a part of has been debating this in recent years our general assembly is in Memphis this year and it starts this week and I'm sure there's going to be some debate about it there it's something that study papers have been written on, there's been floor debates, and there's really godly men that I love and trust that find themselves on either side of interpreting who Phoebe was. Where we are currently, our denomination, and our church by extension is one that we kind of take the the second tack, saying that we, we believe that the broader teaching in the New Testament shows that Deacon and elder, these ordained offices are ones reserved for qualified men. And therefore, Phoebe here is not being called a deaconess, but rather a servant of the church. That's, we've kind of been obedient to the broader teaching of our denomination on that. And that's why when we took nominations for deacons just a few months ago, we only opened up those nominations for men who were qualified. But I really, really appreciate our denomination having space for for us to continue to open this issue, to debate it, to talk about it, to study it, and to say we don't want to do something just because it's traditionally what we've always done. We want to do it because we believe it's most faithful to the teaching of the Bible. And if this is saying that Phoebe was a deacon, a deaconess, we want to be on board with that. And so the conversations continue. And... I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Regardless of what you think about the office of deacon, though, here, here's something everyone agrees upon, or at least they should. Phoebe is a vital and essential part of the gospel going forward in the part of the world where she lived. She's an essential part to the health and the prospering of the church. She was trusted with carrying the letter to the Romans. Not just anybody would be trusted with that. She is a co-laborer in the gospel, a patron, Paul says, of his ministry. She was somebody that has supported many. Phoebe used her gifts in incredible ways for the sake of the church, and God bore a lot of fruit through that. And... The thing that maybe is the most interesting of all about this is that it seems that she did these things and made her mark on the church all by being unmarried. Seems like Phoebe was single or at least widowed, which is still single. Man, I mean, I was born in the wrong time. First century, me and Phoebe, both single. Oh, you know it's bad when Nathaniel Wyand goes, oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, no, no, that was a throwaway statement. That is not where I'm going with this. Here's where I'm going with this. That was the dumbest thing I could have said because this is actually supposed to be a really serious point. Being single in the church is hard. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. You guys know that. Many of you guys know that. I'm not married myself, and it's been a road with lots of twists and turns and hurdles. But I think that for single women in the church, it's exponentially harder. From what I've seen, what I've heard, conversations I've had. Because oftentimes, the vibe that's picked up by our single women in the church is that their only road to significance in the kingdom of God is as either being a wife or a mother. And that's not true. Amen. <laughs> Amen indeed. I, um, I don't want to, my comments to denigrate or take away from the importance of being a wife or a mother and how crucial that is, and how thankful I am for those of you women in our church that are that. But what I want to do is push back on this lie that I think our young women sometimes believe, or our older women sometimes believe, and that is, if, if I'm not married, if I'm not a mom, then I have nothing to offer the kingdom of God. Phoebe just smacks that in the face and says, are you crazy? I mean, if it's true, we're not 100% certain, but more than likely, I mean, it really stands out like a sore thumb that when she's mentioned here, she's not mentioned in connection with a husband or as a widow. If it is true that Phoebe is single, if she's unmarried, then she is doing all of these things, which makes the Apostle Paul marvel at her. She's doing all of it as a, a woman that's not married And she's not viewing her life as this holding pattern she's in until she gets married and has kids and all of a sudden has significance. No, she's saying, God has given me these gifts, these talents, these skills, and I'm going to use them for the sake of the gospel. And thank God she did. Because if we're benefiting from the book of Romans here 2,000 years later, it's in part because of her faithfulness. Women, listen to me. I hope that God gives you the desire of your heart. If your longing is to be married, to be a mom, I pray that with you. But this season you're in of not having that right now, or even whatever the future holds for you, it it, it doesn't have to be limited to that. Think about your life and how you can be using your gifts and pouring yourself out for the sake of Christ now. There's great significance in that. And I hope that's encouraging to you. I hope Phoebe's encouraging to you. The last observation I'll make, because I'm out of time here, but it's, uh, I can't miss this one. It's the best one. And that is, there's that phrase. All these names here, all these greetings, they are overwhelmingly Jesus-y. So Jesus-y. Like, Paul can't say somebody's name without then connecting them to the way that Jesus is working in their life and the way that Christ has bonded them together. It's like he has this compulsion that whenever he says a name, he has to follow it up with how they're in the Lord or approved by Christ. Look at this. I've got just a sort of a a random example. I just choose the middle slide this week and just underline everywhere we see this. In Christ, beloved in the Lord, a worker in Christ, approved in Christ, in the Lord, workers of the Lord, in the Lord, chosen in the Lord. That's just a little bit of of a smattering of this. And you might say, well, in the Lord, is it talking about Jesus, Joshua? Well, yes, it is. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord here is shorthand for Jesus And every time Paul says somebody's name, he has to talk about the way that they are connected in Christ. It's so Jesus-y. And some of you guys might remember that reference. When we started Vespers, it's 10 years ago now, um, we would get questions sometimes, people asking us, like, well, what's the church going to be about? What's its niche? And our previous pastor, Tom Savage, I always remember he answered that one time. He's like, well, I don't know, but I just want it to be overwhelmingly Jesus-y. And that stuck. We put it on postcards and sent it out to people in Chico. No wonder why we we only had like five people when we first met. Oh, and I see that in this passage. And what it says to me, y'all, is this. That when we are people that are sinking deeply into the gospel, believing the grace of Jesus in our lives, all of a sudden our vision is transformed and we begin to see our relationships and our connections through this lens of Christ. And I think not just about who you are and what I appreciate about you, but I also begin to think about how Jesus is at work in our relationship, how he's connected us in faith. I to see Joy Merrill who loves studying the word of God and loves the book of Romans in particular. It, it's so exciting and it's so, it makes me so enthusiastic. But then I think, Joy, I see Christ at work in that. I see Jesus in you doing that and stirring that up. Or I mentioned this this morning, Pastor Brian, he and I have worked together for almost eight years now. And I love working with Brian. Because of who he is, how we compliment each other, how he like talks me off the ledge it seems like every other week. But then I look further and I say, oh my gosh, I see Christ bringing us together in in his sovereignty. I see a brother here that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus just like I have. And that's why we're so simpatico and kindred spirits and work together. And it's not enough just to sort of stick with the quality you like about the person or the history that you have with them, but to look further and to see Jesus underneath it all. That's what I mean by overwhelmingly Jesus-y. And I think that's why Paul can't go through this greeting section without saying the name and then saying, they're my brother in Christ. They're approved in the Lord. They're a worker with Jesus. They came to Christ before me in Asia Minor and on and on and on and on. I've found that when I have complimented somebody over the years as a pastor, when I've tried to encourage them, lift them up with something that I see in their life that I'm really encouraged by, the thing that seems to resonate with them the most and mean the most is when I'm able to simply say, I see Christ at work in you. I could tell somebody that they had a beautiful singing voice Or that they're the smartest person I've ever met or the most creative. And yet all of that seems to pale in comparison when I'm able simply to say in honesty, I see Jesus in you. I see Christ forming you and working through you. That makes the heart sing when we hear that. Because we're gospel people. At heart, all we are is because we've been redeemed by Jesus. His death has atoned for our sin and given us peace with God, and now we abide in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so when somebody says, I see Christ working in you, what a beautiful blessing. So I'm going to finish this sermon with something of a benediction, and it goes like this. May our church be so Christ-saturated that every relationship we see, every friendship we have, every connection we make comes away feeling overwhelmingly Jesus-y. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that and ask that Even this this section of scripture, one that's easy to zoom right over and just be like, ah, it's just a bunch of names that we would just see in it what you're trying to tell us, that we would hear your voice and that we would become people that see all of our relationships, all of our life through this lens of the gospel. We thank you for that, Lord. And we bless you in the name of Christ. Amen.